Much like the season of Lent itself, this text that we're about to hear begins in ashes and ends in new life and resurrection. The biblical prophets often preached in times of upheaval and change. Change not of their own choosing, but rather change that was forced upon the nation of Israel in the most dramatic ways. The prophet Isaiah, for instance, lived during the invasion and occupation of the Assyrian Empire, just as the book of Daniel alludes to the political oppression of the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And similarly, Ezekiel preached during a period of exile, after the Babylonian Empire had sacked Jerusalem and destroyed her temple. Change had been thrust upon these people yet again. But like the other prophets, Ezekiel reminds his people, and he reminds us, that with God's help they can make a difference in their world and a few changes of their own. A reading from Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophecy to these bones, and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded, and as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophecy to the breath, prophecy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet a vast multitude. Then he said to me, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore, prophecy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. 
and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you on your own soil. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, creator of all things and the source of all life, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We marched that day like a force to be reckoned with. Men and women in clerical collars and the people who we'd come to support, we rolled through the streets of the windy city like tumbleweed in the desert or a snowball rolling downhill, gathering force and momentum as we charged down East Wacker Drive. Truth be told, I was not fully apprised of the situation. From what I understood and what I'd been told, there was a hotel, uh, a hotel chain excuse me, in the city owned by billionaires who had laid off dozens of employees despite earning record profits last quarter. A colleague had invited me to come along, show support for the people who had lost their jobs, and represent the larger faith community as we demanded satisfaction for this slap in the face of the working class. The governing board of the hotel was meeting that afternoon high atop their spire of steel and glass, and we were marching toward their doorstep to demand an audience. Ever since I was a teenager, I had sought an opportunity to stick it to the man. You know, the man the proverbial man, the powers that be, the powers and principalities that rule the world. I wanted to find the man, to grab him by his lapels and tell him, this aggression will not stand, man. <laughs> this seemed like a good chance, so I strapped on my clerical collar and picked up a sign and marched alongside folks in house cleaning aprons and hotel uniforms. The excitement of it all reached a crescendo as we reached the doors of the hotel, intent on marching into the boardroom and airing our grievances. But before we reached the threshold, a beefy guy in a black suit and dark sunglasses walked through the door and blocked the entrance. The pastor, who was leading the march, declared loudly enough for most of us to hear that we'd all like to speak with the board. Not going to happen, the muscle replied. Well, the pastor pressed on, then I would like to speak with the board. The security guy slowly shook his head as if the rippling musculature in his neck made the motion difficult. I only want to read them this letter the pastor murmured, pulling out a wrinkled piece of paper. Again, the man monolith shook his head 
And the pastor knew that he was losing ground. How about this, he pleaded. Can you just take the letter and bring it upstairs so that they can read it? No, the larger man replied without emotion. He was an immovable object, a solid brick wall. I don't think the Kool-Aid guy could have put a dent in him. It was just about that time that a Chicago police officer wandered over and casually asked the pastor if we'd all be out here much longer and, you know, if we could wrap it up by 4 o'clock, that'd be just swell. And the pastor sort of demurred, went to confer with the other folks leading the, the march, and the energy just sort of died. And after that, the crowds dispersed quietly, like leaves in the wind. As I rode the train home that afternoon, I felt disillusioned. Nothing had been accomplished. Nothing had changed. In the words of the bard, ours was a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. We'd roll down that street like tumbleweed, all right. Insubstantial, weightless and blown off course by the smallest breeze. Making a real difference in this world can be hard. Every day we read things in the news that fill us with righteous anger and indignation. We see and we hear about exploitation and corruption and violence. We looked on this past week as yet another killer shot up a school. And we're frustrated and we're angry because no one seems willing to address this chronic issue in any meaningful or significant way. And we shout from the sidelines, seemingly unable to inspire change. Even within the scope of our own lives, changes are hard to make. We're creatures of habit and routine, distracted by the demands of life. I don't know about you, but sometimes for me, the average day can feel like something that's been scripted for me. Drop off the kids. Go to the office. Go to sleep. As if we were actors in a film. Or worse still, the characters they play who have no awareness of the script or any ability to change it. Last week I was watching the Coen Brothers cult classic, The Big Lebowski. Great movie. It's the story of an affable, lazy, and willfully unemployed denizen of L.A. named Jeffrey Lebowski, though he calls himself The Dude. Now, The Dude basically just wants to be left alone. But when two hired grunts who are looking for a different Jeffrey Lebowski break into his house one night and urinate on his favorite rug, which really tied the room together, (laughs) his search for a new rug draws him into a series of unlikely events. It's a big drama with a lot of ins and outs, a lot of what-have-yous. that involves a kidnapped trophy wife, a million-dollar ransom and a missing briefcase, and a gang of German nihilists that set the dude's car on fire. Now, the nihilism angle, which crops up time and again in this film, is key to appreciating the movie. 
Because it's a brilliant film, but the whole thing is totally pointless. It's a very busy movie. A lot of things happen. It's very fast-paced. But from beginning to end, in spite of all the drama and all the action, nothing much changes. We learn that the, the kidnapped wife kidnapped herself for the ransom money, that the briefcase with a million dollars in it was empty all along, and that nothing was ever really at stake. In the end, the dude goes back to bowling and drinking white Russians in his bathrobe like nothing ever happened. This film is an expression, I believe, of pure nihilism, a school of philosophy in which everything is meaningless and change is insignificant, maybe even impossible. And I confess that sometimes that resonates with me. Sometimes I feel like a character in a pointless film, probably the handsome lead, <laughs> played by, uh, what's that guy, Chris Hemsworth? Yeah. Uh, or worse, and perhaps more accurately, I feel like a ghost some days like a specter in an old house struggling to move tangible objects with my ephemeral hands. I feel insubstantial, less real than the world around me, unable to affect change or make a meaningful difference in the world. In his novel, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis illustrates a similar metaphor. The story is an allegory about heaven and hell, and for Lewis, hell is a kind of vague, intangible place. The food has no flavor. The world has no color. And the people, portrayed as narcissistic caricatures, have no real substance. They are profoundly shallow. But there's a bus in this story, a bus that regularly brings folks up to heaven from the depths of hell, should they be inclined to go, and those ghosts who make the trip find heaven to be a place so colorful that it hurts their eyes, a place so solid that mere blades of grass are painful to touch. It's a place they have to adapt to, become a part of, because they can't move so much as a pebble in this place, much less a boulder. It was the lights, the grass, the trees that were different, Lewis writes, made of some different substance, so much solider than things in our country that men were ghosts by comparison. I tried to pick a leaf up, he continues in the voice of one such ghost, and my heart almost cracked with the effort. I believe I did just raise it, but I had to let it go at once. It was heavier than a sack of coal. And Lewis concludes this recollection with an even more startling and troubling discovery. Looking down, he writes, I noticed that I could see the grass not only between my feet, but through them. I also was a phantom. Who will give me words to express the terror of that discovery? If heaven is more real, more substantial than hell or even earth, 
then I believe that we grow more substantial in God's presence, more solid somehow, and strong enough to make a difference in the world. The prophet Ezekiel describes that very same idea in this scripture that we heard. Like most biblical prophets, Ezekiel preached in troubled times. The temple had been destroyed by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Jerusalem had fallen, and the Israelites had been taken back to Babylon as slaves, with Ezekiel among them. Those not captured were deported, kicked out of their ancestral homeland, scattered, forced to wander the earth. This exile is remembered as one of the darkest periods in Jewish history, the ultimate cultural trauma until the Holocaust would occur some 2,600 years later. Hope for change was at an all-time low. And in the midst of this, Ezekiel is given this macabre vision of a valley filled with human bones. And in God's presence, the bones came together, bone to bone, and there were sinews upon them, and skin had covered them, and breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, a vast multitude. These ghosts, these bones, became real again, alive. On Ash Wednesday, we remember that we are dust, mere tumbleweed, a fragile collection of ash and memory that tumbles along at the mercy of the wind and at the mercy of the world. But in Lent, while we recognize our own fragility, we also look towards the risen Christ who invites us to join him in his resurrection. And the closer we get to him, the more solid, the more real, and the more alive we become. To put this in more practical terms, I feel like I have more substance here in this church. I feel like the things I do matter more, that they carry more weight, that they make a more substantial difference in people's lives and in the world when I'm here. And maybe that's because here, I don't do anything alone. Here, people come together like bones at the joints. Muscles are strengthened and built up by acts of service. Here, breath is inhaled and exhaled in prayer. And together, we become the body of Christ, his hands and his feet, and we make a real difference. We feed the hungry. We minister to the sick and the grieving. We offer sanctuary to the wounded and purpose to the lost. We raise our children to be faithful disciples, and we learn how to be disciples too. Our latest initiatives challenge injustice, and we try to do it effectively by leveraging the relationships that can get us into that proverbial boardroom instead of being locked outside with beefy security guards. Everything we do here matters. Whether we're staff or volunteers, everything we do makes a difference from cooking a meal for a grieving family to washing a dish, 
from offering a candlelight service for the grieving widow to sending an email about how many candles we're going to need, from supporting a capital campaign to putting a dollar in the plate. Everything we do makes a difference in someone's life. And making a difference is what really makes us come alive. It's what makes us real. My son has a collection of stuffed animals in his bed. And after I put him to bed at night, I can sometimes hear him talking to them, apparently running his own little board meeting of some kind. We have other stuffed animals in the house too, but these ones, the ones that get to sleep with him, are special. These ones are real, Dad, he'll tell me, because they have the magic. And when he says that, I'm reminded of stories from my childhood like the Velveteen Rabbit or Pinocchio, toys who wanted to be real. And I want to share a story with you today about a doll who wanted nothing more than to be a real boy. This little guy never felt like he belonged. The other dolls made fun of him because of his glasses and his tangled mop of hair. No one invited him to their parties or their puppet shows, and no one sat with him at lunch. He saw injustices on the playground at recess and was subject to more than a few of them. As he got a little older, he saw the same crimes perpetrated by adults who exploited the most vulnerable, lorded their power over others, and simply refused to share their toys. He wanted to do something about it, but he felt as powerless as he'd always been in school. He believed in a better world, but he didn't know how to build it. And then one day, he found a place full of people who believed in a better world, too. It was a place of radical hospitality, where everyone was welcome, even a weird little doll like him. And in that church, as he worked alongside his new friends year after year after year, he didn't even realize that he'd changed. But when he looked down at his hands one day, he realized that he'd become real. Because here, with these people, he could make a real difference. Amen.